A song that is really quite interesting for its structure is Happiness is a Warm Gun. Um, because that song it's more or less what you call through composed where none of the sections ever get returned to like you get a section then you move on and we never hear that ever again and we move on to a new thing and it has various time signature changes like I was saying with John it was actually a, a brilliant example of John's absurd approach to meter where Every, almost every other bar, it's like a different time signature. And then the fact that that's all in a song, which is less than three minutes, I think. So it's it's just a bit of a crazy ma- mash of, of different ideas, but it works. Jumpers from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business they were four very talented guys. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Today we're talking to the incredibly talented David Bennett. You may know David from YouTube, where his channel, David Bennett Piano, has about 700,000 subscribers. He's a professional pianist who creates brilliant videos that break down and explain pretty much all aspects of music theory using popular songs as examples within the videos. One of David's favorite groups to talk about while discussing music theory is the Beatles, which is why I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast. Thank you to all who have been tuning in weekly. It's nice to see you back this week. And to all of those newcomers, welcome. This is a podcast where we explore the Beatles' continued influence on today's world and popular culture, decades after their breakup. David, thank you so much for coming on the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. Yeah, yeah, glad to glad to be here. You have a wildly popular YouTube channel on which you post videos breaking down concepts of music theory. Mm-hmm. And in your videos, you frequently use Beatles songs as example to break down these complex music theory concepts. How did you hear the Beatles for the first time? Um, well, my dad, well, my dad is a big music fan, full stop. But the Beatles is one of his favorites. So, as I was growing up, there was always um, music playing, and um, particularly the second half of the Beatles' career, you know, would be played almost every day in my house. So. They were just always there. It's, it's something I've, I don't remember a time when I, I didn't know about them. And I, it always makes me think that obviously some people, they remember where and when they were when they first heard, you know, Strawberry Fields or or A, a Day in the Life or something like that. But for me, I've, I get, I've always just taken it for granted because they've always been familiar with these songs. Do you remember if you always liked their music or did you hear it as more of the music your dad played instead of being a fan of it yourself? I think I was always a fan. I think um, the the music my dad used to play um, was my introduction to music. I think I think that's what got me hooked. Um, bands like you know not just the Beatles. Like he also would play Queen and ELO and David Bowie. Just all sort of your classic sixties, seventies acts. Mm-hmm. And how old are you now? Uh, I'm twenty nine, but people think I'm younger than that. 
but I'm ha- I'm quite happy with that though. That's fine. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you and I are definitely part of the younger generation of Beatles fans that are out there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So what music was contemporary for the time you grew up in, and how did the Beatles music compare to that? Um, I think it wasn't until I was like um, thirteen, fourteen that I started actually paying attention to contemporary music. I think I was quite happy with with like just my dad's music up until then. And my first i it wasn't it wasn't an iPod. My first MP3 player I got, I only had the Beatles on it, like the Beatles and the solo careers of the Beatles. Um, and I think the first I the first time I started listening to um, pop and and rock music that was out at the time, they were, you're probably not even familiar with them. There's an act called the Fratellis. No, I um, haven't heard of them. Yeah, no, I I don't even listen to them anymore. But that was like the first band who kind of made me think, oh, there's actually modern music too. And um, but yeah, like I, for the longest time, all I listened to was the Beatles. Anyway. Oh, that's pretty cool. How about your peers? Did they listen to more contemporary music, or were they into the classics as well? I think some of my friends. Um, so I remember some of my friends who I kind of played football with. They thought it was a bit weird and silly that my favorite song was this. Like my favorite song, I always used to say is "Hey Bulldog," which is not only from you know from the '60s, but it's quite an obscure Beatles song. Right. So they they used to just kind of take the mick out of me for that. But <laughs> I also had sort of a different group of friends who were into playing guitar and that, and they they knew about the Beatles. Yeah. Um. So with them, it was it was kind of cool, and and with the other guys, it was just this daft like you know old music. Right. <laughs> So how did you first become interested in pursuing music professionally? Um, when, well, I think well, I always had a love for music. And um, when I was about 10 or 11, my dad took up piano lessons. and But then he quite quickly quit. And we had this keyboard in our house. And my mum said you know, to me and my sister, do you want to take up piano lessons? And I did. And um, it was a bit of a rocky start because... Particularly at the time, I wasn't very good at sort of like formal education, sit down and do this. Um, so the actual lessons only lasted for about a year. But then after that, I started sort of self-teaching a bit and just mucking around. And, and that's where I found how I, I personally can learn music is in my own sort of at my own rate. Hmm. And did the Beatles have any influence on your decision to do that? Um, I think so. I think, you know, I was always trying to learn Beatles songs. Um in in the earlier days, I think it was some of the other music that my dad played that inspired the keyboard playing, like bands like The Doors and uh, Stevie Wonder, The Stranglers, like bands that had sort of really interesting keyboard parts. So the Beatles have got great keyboard parts as well, but the Beatles are they're more few few and far between with the Beatles. The, the Beatles like a more guitar music, I reckon. So, at which point did you decide to take your knowledge of music to YouTube and? start this channel um well this channel the channel that y- you know is actually just one in a long chain of attempts um so i think you know i started the channel the, you know, the channel i have now four four years ago but my first ever channel i started about 10 years prior to that when i was about 16 or 17 just doing sort of cover versions and stuff like that and over the years i did like different type I did like um sort of very basic piano tutorial videos and I did a piano covers channel and nothing really stuck and then I started seeing people like well one of my mates introduced me to Adam Neely who you might watch um who's a 
a music theory educator sort of guy on YouTube. And I his format a video where it's music education, but it's not just dry lessons. It's more thoughtful and, and interactive. And that really made me think, oh, I, I could probably do that. Um, and I gave it a go and it worked. Yeah, well, it certainly works really well. <laughs> I, so I'm wondering, music theory and the concepts that you talk about in your videos, how naturally does all of that come to you? Um, like As I said, when I first started learning the piano, like the first, apart from the, the year of lessons I had where I didn't really pick up that much, I was self-taught. So I, although I kind of had my theory, my way of thinking about things, I didn't actually know much like traditional music theory. And it wasn't until a few years later when I studied at college that um, I was being taught theory formally for the first time. And it all kind of just had this sort of um, this moment where I like the penny dropped and I realized, oh, these like, you know, I'd been calling major chords just by like the notes that comprise them. So I would call C major C E G D minor DFA. And I was like, oh, so that's a major chord. That's a minor chord. And like, oh, that means that. And it all kind of just started coming together. And within the course of a couple of years, the I was obsessed with theory because it had su suddenly started answering all of these questions about how music is all connected. I'd, I'd, I'd noticed how different elements of music are connected, but I couldn't really explain it. And then suddenly there was all, the, all of this theory to sort of put two and two together. And if anyone has not seen David's videos on YouTube, check them out. They're very informative and thoughtfully put together. The link to his channel is in the podcast description. Uh, but David, you mention the Beatles often in these videos when you're giving examples of different topics of music theory. In the research you've done while creating these videos, have you found anything unique to the way the Beatles composed their songs? Um. Yeah, so the Beatles just sort of, they had a knack for doing stuff a little bit differently than everyone else and i don't think they meant to do it they just were very creative and they, and they thought oh what if this or what if that what if we broke that rule so for example john lennon has a real habit of throwing in random time signature changes so he'll have a song and it will largely be in like 4/4 time which is quite predictable but then suddenly there'll be a random bar of 5/4 and then it'll go back to 4/4 and that sort of mm. thing where and I, he wasn't thinking in those terms it was probably just an a, almost an accidental thing that he did but it's really weird when you look at other popular songs um whether it's of that era or any era most of the time people keep it fairly sort of straight and narrow one time signature one key you know five chords the beatles just would like any given song there's, there will be something weird and unusual in there but they always make it work that's so interesting. Now, do you think they knew what they were doing when it came to music theory? Or like how much music theory did they even know? So I did a video on this and it's it's a, a commonly talked about topic. Um, they didn't really know any formal music theory. Um, they certainly didn't know how to read music, although that's only one aspect of, of music theory. Um, I think what they ultimately, they had their own sort of way of thinking about music their own theory for lack of a better word but they def they definitely didn't have the formal training and i think that is where george martin was the the perfect um galvanizer for them because he could sort of be the bridge um to you know they, they would be trying to describe what they wanted and it would be george martin who would be able to work it out and sort of translate that and and then sort of you know they de they certainly couldn't have done all the amazing stuff they did with orchestras and you know horns and strings 
without the aid of George Martin because the lack of music theory vocabulary would have just been a an issue. Right. So when it comes to music structure, in your opinion, which Beatles song is the most structurally impressive? Um, structurally, I think a song that is really quite interesting for its structure is "Happiness Is a Warm Gun." Um, because that song it's more or less what you call through composed where none of the sections ever get returned to like you get a section then you move on and we never hear that ever again and we move on to a new thing and it has various time signature changes like I was saying with John it was actually a, a brilliant example of John's absurd approach to meter where Every, almost every other bar, it's like a different time signature. And then the fact that that's all in a song, which is less than three minutes, I think. So it's it's just a bit of a crazy mash of, of different ideas, but it works. Why does it work? Um, I think the Beatles just... They... They had, they had a knack for interesting ideas and, and fun ideas and I think the thing is Happiness is a Warm Gun, it wasn't a, a single, it wasn't on the radio um, but because they they had, the Beatles had sort of by the time they did the White Album had developed this sort of license to do what the hell they wanted so no, there isn't a reason why songs need to return to previous sections really, you can make it work without that but it's just a common thing we do in pop music but the Beatles didn't have to worry about that, they just thought Let's do this song where it just does a bunch of random stuff and see what happens, and, and people love it. <laughs> you know, another Beatles song I really appreciate for the way it was created is Strawberry Fields Forever. And you actually made an entire video about that song. Hmm. So what's your favorite thing about this one? Yeah, so it started as a fairly simple guitar-based tune that John had written. and they took various attempts at recording it and it was one of the it was at the era where the Beatles had finally kind of been given as much studio time as they wanted and John in particular who was quite a perfectionist he took full advantage of that and they basically they set about recording this version of Strawberry Fields, which was quite a typical Beatles arrangement. You know, guitar, drums, bass. You had the Mellotron, which is obviously like an interesting choice. But beyond that, it was fairly straightforward. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields. And they finished that. And then John went to George Martin and said, I don't really like it. Can we do it again? So they started it again from from scratch, and they had a big orchestra. They had loads of percussion, horns, and they finished that. And John said, "I like that." 
but can we have the first minute of the original recording and the last two minutes of the other recording? And then George Martin sort of like, you know, put his head in his hands and, and thought, why? Why did you have to do that? But <laughs> then, of course, you know, you can't say no to John Lennon. So he made it happen. And what's amazing is the version that w- the, the second version they did was in the key of C, whereas the original version was in the key of B flat. So to make them join, they had to um, find a way of, of sort of bridging that that gap in the keys. Otherwise, it would have been quite jarring. So they slowed down the version in C to the point that the key had now become B flat, which also more or less brought the tempo to match the tempo of the first one. So it was kind of this magic bit of editing that brought these two vastly different recordings together um, and created the version of Strawberry Fields we know today. And and the fact that that was done on physical tape as well, not in some sort of computer, is, is just absurd, really. It's getting hard to be someone, but it all works out. How does slowing the actual song down drop it in key? So, if you imagine, um, if you imagine that pitch is just frequency, right? So, a higher pitch is something that vibrates quicker. A lower pitch is something that vibrates slower. So, because of that, if you speed up the um, the speed at which a recording is being played back, it will have a higher pitch, and vice versa, it will have a lower pitch. So, for example, on a record player, you've got your thirty-three and your 45 speed and if you ever accidentally put um a a album on on 45 speed it will suddenly sound like a chipmunk because it's being played too quickly and and that's actually where the chipmunk sound comes from um so it's just it's just the nature of of how sound works and with computers you can actually now change tempos and keys independently because they have these clever algorithms that can do it but back in the 60s the only way to change the tempo was to change the key as well, uh, and they would move together. So it w- you were very limited, but luckily the Beatles had recorded the two versions of Strawberry Fields in such a way that it actually more or less could match in the middle. So it sounds like George Martin was the one that was behind most of the music theory in the Beatles songs. Definitely. And he, he was, like, if, if the um, Beatles existed today with modern... Um, approaches to producer-artist relationship, George Martin would be credited as a songwriter on every single track because that's what happens today, and that's why people, what you get songs, pop songs today that have like seven writers because someone's chipped a little bit in and they've all been given a bit of credit. But back in the day, that wasn't really done. So George Martin, even though he would often write quite substantial parts of these songs, didn't get any composer credit. It's insane, right? Now, do you have a favorite George Martin contribution? I think it has to be In My Life, uh, the piano solo. Um, I don't know if you know the story behind that one, but they basically left... The Beatles would often leave gaps in their songs for solos. So they'd record the rhythm track in that, and then once they'd done that, they would overdub a solo. But they didn't want another guitar solo, so for In My Life, they um, decided to have a piano solo. But... Um, and their go-to guy for piano solos was always George Martin because he was by far the, the best piano player um, 
you know any any remotely sophisticated piece of piano work on a Beatles song is is George Martin, not Paul or John. Um, and uh, the story goes that the the Beatles went out for dinner and just left George Martin at the studio to write something. So he wrote this kind of like Bach esque piano bit, went to record it, and found the tempo was too fast, so he couldn't actually do it. So what they did they did this trick where they slowed down the tape speed to half. He then recorded it an octave down and half tempo. And then when you then put the tape back up to proper speed, you get this really quick, shrill sounding piano tone, which is which is what you hear on the record. Dude, that's just so cool. Yeah, it's amazing, I think. In, so in the Beatles' seven years of being a band, how did their way of composing their songs change from 1962 to 1970? I think that the biggest change you see is um, when they decided to stop being a touring group. Um, on, on the Rubber Soul record, you can already feel they're getting to a point where they can't recreate their records live anymore. Um, or at least in the proper way that they wanted to, um, because they were starting to do too many studio tricks. They were starting to use orchestras and and session musicians, which although today would be perfectly fine, at the time it was quite unusual for an act to perform with anyone else beyond the core members. Um, and I think the story goes that um, you know Paul McCartney heard "Pet Sounds" by the Beach Boys and thought, "Man, that's wild," but we could never do it live. And that crossed with the fact that the Beatles were having increasingly worse experiences live. Like, there's the whole Manila episode. I don't know if you know about that. Um, yeah, that one was bad. And I think that for a lot of them, I think Ringo in particular was just like, I'm not touring anymore. Like, we're the Beatles. Why are we doing this? And and I think a lot of people thought that was when they're going to break up. But actually, that's when they started doing their best stuff because they could now, for the first time ever, write music, not having to imagine, oh, how are we going to pull us off live? So they could start doing all this wild stuff in the studio with, with you know, sitars and trumpets and violins and tape loops and, and all that sort of stuff that you could never pull off live in the, in the 1960s. So when it comes to studying music history and music theory, why are the Beatles so heavily studied? And why is it not more contemporary artists or even other artists from that time? I think, um, well, of course, the Beatles already have the advantage of being really well known and i one of the things i always try and do when i teach theory is a, a show examples in well-known adored songs because then it sort of proves that the theory is relevant if it's been used in such a well-known song then you know it must be worth learning about um but on top of that the beatles just particularly as they got a little bit older they had such a habit for thinking outside the box thinking oh what if we did this or what if we did that instead that you've kind of got in their catalogue an example of almost every music theory concept you'd want to talk about. Um, like, you know, for example, Tomorrow Never Knows. John wrote a song that only used one chord, just stayed on C major. And there's this great clip in, in the Beatles anthology collection where Paul describes how they, they brought that to George Martin. And they, also, they almost thought they were being cheeky by suggesting a song that only had one chord, as if it was a bit of a joke. But then George Martin was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And um, and then it turned into Tomorrow Never Knows. So, yeah, you can just find 
all these different ideas that the Beatles had and, and use them as examples when you're teaching theory. You briefly mentioned the difference between early Beatles music and later Beatles music. Do you have a preference of which you like to listen to? My preference is definitely later. Um, in my eyes, I kind of see it as three stages. You've got obviously the early era, which I feel maybe ended with probably Hard Day's Night. Um, and then like Rubber Soul through to probably the White Album is like the middle period. And I would say that's my favorite. Um, and then the last two, Abbey Road and Let, Let It Be, you can almost feel that they're trying to get back to the old rock and roll band that they were, particularly on Let It Be. I think that it was actually kind of part of the objective was let's get back to just being a rock and roll band, which is why they didn't get George Martin involved, because obviously George Martin was more about the orchestral bits and the and the sort of studio tricks. And I think John in particular had kind of become a bit self-aware that he wasn't necessarily a, a rock and roller anymore. He was more this kind of weird avant-garde guy. So yeah, so for me, definitely that middle period. Um, it's just so many amazing pieces of music in in such a small window you know three years maybe yeah, yeah. What, what's your opinion on the beatles reunion in the 90s when they made free as a bird and, and real love i think those those two songs are great and it was a really good idea um and it i think it really is a shame that john couldn't do that and i i, I think we could have had another fantastic Beatles album if John hadn't been killed I think it it was there to be made um particularly as they took the approach of obviously they wanted John to be involved so they used old John demos but if they'd kind of taken that approach and done a whole album like taken old Beatles songs that didn't get finished and finished them 30 years later I think we could have had a, an amazing sort of it, it reminds me of um going back to the Beach Boys how um Brian Wilson finally finished the album Smile which yeah. um, obviously was kind of this grand vision he had back in the 60s and it never kind of happened. And it's actually really well done, his, his version he did later on. I could imagine a similar thing happening with the Beatles. Let's say hypothetically John had lived and all four Beatles reunited in the 80s or 90s. Uh, looking back on them now, would their music still be considered timeless and legendary? I think it would be. I think... There definitely is something to be said about when a legendary musician dies too young, they they begin to get um, sort of elevated to that godlike status. So like your Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison, um, you know, even more recently with Amy Winehouse, like we start to put them more on a pedestal because it's almost like, you know, unfortunately, there's, there's almost like an artistic beauty in dying young like it's not very nice but it's just like this kind of right. story it makes it easier to tell the story because the story's done um so and also because the beatles um stopped in the 70s and never reopened that that can they never sort of tainted their back catalog whereas i think some artists like i don't know like you know the rolling stones they're fantastic but because they never stopped it's like you might if you said oh i love the rolling stones it's like or do you love the 60s and 70s stones or do you love the 80s stones which is kind of like a different sound different band in a way so it helps to like canonize the beatles the fact that they just sort of 
were started and finished within one decade in the 60s and we can now sort of just reflect on that and and put that on on a pedestal before you just mentioned brian wilson and his smile project which he began in order to compete with the beatles in like 66 or 67 and the beatles created sergeant pepper in order to compete with pet sounds which was made in order to compete with rubber soul but if you put sergeant pepper head to head with pet sounds which do you think is the better album? For me, it's Sgt. Pepper. Um, the thing is, with Sgt. Pepper, I th- it has a very nostalgic um, appeal to me as well because I think it was, um, it was the sort of album I kept listening to when I was growing up, um, and to this day I still say it's my favorite Beatles record. I do think that there are better Beatles records, but for me, Sgt. Pepper is because of just that nostalgic connection. Um, but the thing that Sgt. Pepper, Sgt. Pepper definitely does is it explores so many sound worlds, different ideas and concepts. You know, Revolver, you know, could easily be the best Beatles record. Abbey Road could. But they're, although they are very experimental and very interesting, they don't quite push it over that envelope like Sgt. Pepper does, where, it, you know, it stops being the Beatles. It's now Sgt. Pepper. It's this other idea. Yeah, I got to say, when I listen to Sgt. Pepper... I don't register it as the Beatles. Like when I'm listening to fixing a hole in my mind, Mm. it's not the same group that sings. Like I saw her standing there at all. And that that was the objective. Like, um, you know, Paul and John were saying how they, they, you know, they were feeling the pressure of like every Beatles record had more and more anticipation behind it because it's like what they're going to do next. So they kind of just wanted to, you know, be like, this isn't us. This is Sergeant Pepper. This is another band. And, um, and sort of pretend that they are not themselves. So Sgt. Pepper makes you feel nostalgic. Do you have a favorite overall memory associated with the Beatles? Um, I don't know if I have a, a specific memory. I think it's just the there's a set of Beatles songs um, that, that definitely take me back to when I was a kid and my dad was playing the tunes, which is, and those songs always just give me that kind of cozy feeling. Songs like, I am the Warriors and Strawberry Fields, um, and and some of the slightly later stuff like Get Back, just songs that he would play a lot, and it it, it makes me, you know, it, it's almost instantly calming because it's it's sort of quite a cozy feeling. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite Beatle? I'm always torn about this. I I I always feel I have to say John because if you if I write down my favorite Beatles songs, about eight out of ten of them are john songs so i think kind of objectively i have to say john but i also think paul is is amazing and i think he was um in many ways the, the driving force of the band he he was the one who was willing to to sort of do the less appealing jobs like dealing with um a and r guys and publishing and and sort of money and like things that like john as a sort of bit of a maverick and artist just didn't want to touch so I, I very much admire Paul, um, but I think if it was just them as songwriters, then it would be John. So you, you said your favorite Beatles album is Sgt. Pepper. That's an album I always found to be really interesting because, you know, it's always been regarded as the Beatles' best album or, you know, it's always been number one on, like, uh, best album lists. Mm. But the two songs that really jump-started that album's concept didn't even make it on Sgt. Pepper. Like, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane were controversially released as a single 
before mm. the album even came out. I think you're right. I think it's one of those things where Strawberry Fields, oh uh, no, sorry, Sgt. Pepper is often cited as the best album ever made. It's often on the number one position in, in those lists you get, like Rolling Stone list. And then you have to ask yourself, well, if that's the best album ever made, it, it would have been even better if it had Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane on it. Mm. And and I do think it is a shame that they weren't included. Um, it's just the nature of, of the industry at the time that you know, the Beatles hadn't put anything out for a year and people were starting to ask if they'd broken up. Whereas today, you know, Radiohead haven't made an album for over five years and people aren't like, oh no, what's going on? Like, it's just a different era. But um, I, I don't actually know for sure that maybe this information's out there, but I've always wondered which two tracks wouldn't have been on Sgt. Pepper to, to make the space for um, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. Um, and, I, and I don't know which ones I'd choose either if I had to take, take two off. Right. So, yeah, so I maybe that conversation was had, or maybe it never got to that point because before they even finished Strawberry Field, before they even finished Sergeant Pepper, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane had already been taken out of the equation. Yeah, I know the last song that was written for Sergeant Pepper was "With a Little Help from My Friends," hmm. and honestly, I think I could do without "Good Morning, Good Morning" as well. Hmm. I I know what you mean. I, th- I "Good Morning, Good Morning" would be one of the songs which I would sacrifice, and even with a little with a little help. I find that's one of the one of those examples of a song which I think they didn't quite fulfill its potential, and later artists like Joe Cocker, for example, saw the potential in that record and, and made it better, in my opinion. Right. Do you think that would have been a better song for them to record later in their career, like in the maybe even in the White Album? I think you're right. Yeah, I think um, like if you think of Joe Cocker's version, just as you know, that would have fit on the White Album in its in its style. Or, or even on, um, like, let it, on let it be or something. I will try not to sing out of key. Yeah. Oh baby, how I will help my All I need is my I will help my I I think, you know, it might have been one of those things where they always wanted to give a song to Ringo, and that that is the Ringo song on Sgt. Pepper. And although Ringo is great, maybe it just wasn't the right thing for him to sing because it meant it had to be this very low pitched thing um whereas joe cocker's version's wildly different in in sort of vocal range but you know it's it's um it's hard to say and it could have even been a song which the beatles never recorded because there, there are a handful of songs that um like um goodbye i don't know if you know goodbye that was recorded by mary hopkins yeah i love that song i i love that song too and that's you know it is a beatles song for all intents and purposes because paul wrote it and in another universe parallel universe i'm sure they would have put that on a record yeah i would have loved to hear like a final beatles produced version of goodbye it probably would have just been like paul on guitar though yeah well and there, there is that version the, the sort of demo version he did and i prefer that than the mary hopkins version oh me too 100 percent mm. The thing about Sgt. Pepper is that a lot of people say it was the world's first popular concept album. The concept was originally supposed to be like a nostalgic look back on their childhoods, hence the songs Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane, When I'm 64, but the opposing argument is that most of the songs on the album don't actually fit that theme, and Mm. you can't really consider it as a concept album. What's your take on that? I think from what I've read and seen, and you know, in my own opinion, I think it very much started with the intention of being a concept album. The the concept being 
you're listening to a concert performed by Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. You're not listening to the Beatles. And it starts like that. The first two tracks not only kind of are recorded in a way to suggest it's a live recording, but the way they segue together, it starts, you know, acting as if it's a, a medley. But I think the concept quickly um, kind of got compromised. Um, and it's, it is there. Like you had the, the reprise of Sgt. Pepper, which kind of like ties it in. And and that fades into a day in the life, which is kind of like the encore. So it's they almost had that concept nailed, but I think maybe because of Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane getting sacrificed, or maybe just because it was Paul who wanted this idea and the other three weren't that keen, it didn't quite be the concept it was meant to be. How do you think Sgt. Pepper would be if it were recorded today? If they had access to today's technology, would it sound different? I think it it probably. I think it probably would have been. I think um, one of the things that makes the Beatles so great is how they always were pushing technology, uh, the, the current technology they had. And they and they were um, often doing things that officially they weren't really meant to be doing. They, you know, they were kind of abusing the recording, the recording equipment um, from the point of view of EMI Studio, but they just wanted to do what they could. And, and they managed to sort of persuade a lot of the engineers to, to, to get in on that sort of rebellious behavior. So perhaps they would have had the same attitude of sort of experimentation, but with modern tech. But it's it's very hard to imagine that scenario because it's it's almost like the Beatles were the beginning of using a recording studio as an instrument. Um, so to remove that from history almost throws you onto some like parallel universe where um, you know, how someone else would have would have been the first to do that. Maybe you could argue that you know, I don't know Queen might have done that, but then Queen were inspired by the beatles so and like electric like orchestra they but they were inspired by the beatles so it all kind of they're like this the beatles are like this touchstone that if you remove it it all kind of falls apart now today do you think that there's any more room for pushing the boundaries of of music i think so yeah i think um what what happens with with modern tech now with modern recording studio tech is it's almost like there's too many options to play with so it's very easy to kind of just like not experiment and not think outside the box because it's like everything you know you can what would have taken an entire week to set up in a studio you could now open one plugin and you've got the same sound but there's it's always about thinking about what's next what could you do differently and and that's where the best music's being made like i i often try and measure you know when people when people say you know pop, pop music isn't as good as it used to be or whatever you know different people can have their different opinions on that but some artists actually do sound like they're not doing anything new. Whereas some artists, you'd be hard pressed to say, you know, Billie Eilish's debut record. If that had come out 10 years before, no people would be like, what the hell was this? I like the, the sounds on it. Like, and, and at the time it came out, it, maybe it was just about like, yeah, this is fairly acceptable. But people are doing stuff which is different it's just it's hard to see that change on a year by year scale um yeah. but if you teleported you know um as i said the Billie Eilish record back to the 90s people would think how did you create this sound um it, impossible sounds to create right so where do you see pop music going in like the next 10 years um it's hard to say um it's one of those things where you you know you just can't you just can't predict it um and you you of course you always get these like waves of of nostalgia happen like you know in um in in the sort of 
early 80s you had a bit of a a revival of rock and roll music um and in the 90s you had this you know had Britpop where it's a revival of of the 60s vibe and now you've almost got this revival of 90, 80s and 90s music happening um but it's never actually exactly the same it's like blinding light by uh, the weekend is a very 80s inspired record but it wouldn't have fit in the 80s if you'd played it in the 80s it would have sounded weird and like futuristic so there's always a bit of a bit taken from the past and a bit of something new and it's the something new which no one really knows what it is until it's arrived and um if you did know what it was you'd you know you'd have a hit record but you know it's, you have to kind of just wait and see you know you're right it feels like recently we've been kind of reaching to the past again for like influence and inspiration but to me like the 60s were pre- pretty original in their sound like do you think we'll ever reach that point again or maybe the 60s were like inspired by another decade of music i think a lot of the 60s stuff was very much inspired by you know your classic rock and roll which had come 10 years prior your chuck berry elvis presley buddy holly um and it was just a case of you know doing that but with something new and that, and that's very much what the beatles were they they started as a very typical rock and roll band the first four albums like there wasn't really any innovation happening. It was just good pop songs in the style of the time. And then they started thinking, okay, what if we did our rock and roll thing, but we added that and we added that. And that's where you get the innovation come in. So I think at every point in history, music has been taking the past. And if they're thinking you know, outside the box, they'll also think of some new idea, put them together and you've got new music. So who's your favorite contemporary artist at the moment? um i'm actually going to see her tomorrow it's um phoebe bridges i don't know if you listen to phoebe bridges oh i love Um, phoebe bridges yeah she's in london this week and i'm seeing her tomorrow um nice and yeah i i she's the first artist i found in a long time where i've sort of quickly kind of become obsessed and um just kept listening to her album particularly punisher um her second album um she i think a lot of people could listen to her and after the first listen just be like oh i've heard stuff like this before but actually it might be that kind of like typical indie singer songwriter sound but she's always got something a bit different and new in there as well like we were saying and she just has a real knack for for some really emotive songwriting some some really sort of hard-hitting stuff um particularly you know i think a lot of people started with motion sickness which you know, I I certainly think is is one of the best songs of the last ten years, if not the best song. Uh, or whether you're talking about this the studio recording, the the lyrics, the performance, it's just an amazing piece of music. Yes, uh, you know, on one of her tracks, I I think it's on Punisher. Towards the end, you can hear like a very pet sounds influenced mm. collage of sounds, and I think even like a bike bell. Yeah, I I'm, I remember which song that is, but uh, oh, I think the bike bell might be on Scott Street, which is on yes. But that's on uh, Stranger in the Alps, um, the album before. But um, there is a song on Punisher called I Know the End, which starts as quite a typical sort of Phoebe Bridger song. And by the end, like, it's just this cacophony of, of sound and it, it's just so dramatic. And it's and it's one of those sort of song structures that you associate with, with the 70s, with your Bohemian Rhapsodies, where, like, you know, you have your song and then suddenly you wind up in this other song and then it becomes this massive epic thing 
but she does it in a way that's like not corny at all like she's not trying yeah. to rip off a day in the life she's yeah. it's just very modern and very clean yeah, yeah. cut definitely so it's, it's almost the same ethos as songs like a day in the life but we're not copying just doing it her own way yeah and i really appreciate that i mean mm. like you said she's like one of the only artists that are doing that right now mm. so where do you see the beatles place in today's music we all know they've been seeing this massive popularity resurgence from get back but is that just good public relations and a big budget or do their songs actually fit in with contemporary music i think um there's lots of elements to it i think one of the things we're seeing right now is just nostalgia, nostalgia sales. And that's why you've got these big budgets uh, being opened up for things like the Disney Plus series and and, um, and and why you see Paul McCartney headlining Glastonbury. So like you've got a whole generation of people who um, have spent their entire life with the Beatles, whether they were there at the beginning or whether their parents introduced them to the Beatles or whether their grandparents introduced them to the Beatles. Um, I think what will be really telling is when the Beatles are no longer in living memory when there was no one alive anymore who remembers being alive when the Beatles were around. Um, and we're, we're sort of there now with the great American songbook writers like George Gershwin, Cole Porter, those sort of people who wrote so many classic songs and their songs are almost so woven into society now and, and culture that they sort of transcend being a song written by a guy and they're just part of culture. Um, and I can see that happening with the Beatles, where 200 years time, people will be familiar with Beatles songs in the same way that you're familiar with old folk songs. Like everyone knows Amazing Grace. No one, well, literally no one knows who wrote it. Uh, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we don't know who wrote the Beatles songs because um, of the way that we now look after information. But I think we'll get to a point where everyone sort of subconsciously knows the Beatles music, even if they've never... They, they couldn't name you like that it was the Beatles or, or when it came out or what album it was on or, or anything like that. Do you think there'll ever come a day where we lose all of this information or just where like this information becomes irrelevant? It's, it's really interesting because I think it's very easy to forget that the recorded music industry is only a hundred years old. And yet we already have all of this music all, and we've spent, we've already spent so much time reviewing it reflecting it canonizing it we can tell the story of of rock and roll is they starting in the delta and then and then going and going crossing the pond and coming back and then synthesizers and all, all this stuff and that's just like almost just one lifetime and um it makes you think in 500 500 years time when we've got five five times more music than we do today will it be so diluted that acts like the beatles start to sort of become become forgotten about because I think that's the threat. It's not like we'll lose the information um, because, you know, we, we're very good now at documenting stuff. We're not going to lose this stuff. Um, it's just a case of one day will we have so much music, so much culture mm. that we just don't have the the cultural energy to, to remember every single artist and every single song. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I think a lot of us, including myself, look at music evolution as like a linear progression hmm. and we categorize it very quickly into like 60s this sounds 60s this sounds 50s this sounds 80s yeah but you know one day maybe that way of categorizing these songs you know becomes obsolete i think it will zoom out if you think 
classical music is the best like com comparison we have where if you're a classical musician you still think in that timeline but rather than decades you think centuries and mm. and rather than you know there's definitely more than 40 great composers over the last 400 years but to be honest most people could only name you 40 and that's only if they've really like been paying attention to music like most people on the street could probably only name you like 10 classical composers yeah. i think the good thing for the beatles is if it is whittle if the whole of 20th century music is whittled down to two or three artists i think the beatles will be one of those artists so even if you know the kinks the who uh even the rolling stones even if those guys are kind of like almost forgotten about the beatles will manage to stay keep their head above the that water i think oh i agree yeah and you've been doing your part with keeping their memory out there with your videos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what are you up to now, David? Are you working on anything at the moment? So yeah, I've got I've always got um all sorts of videos um sort of going at, you know, at any given time I, I sort of have three or four videos that I'm either in the process of editing, scripting, filming um and what uh, the biggest change for me is in the last year I've effectively gone full time with YouTube which is, is something I could have done earlier, but, you know, I was working as a professional musician and I, you know, I enjoyed what I did. So I didn't have this urge to quit my job, but then there just came a point where I couldn't juggle everything. And I was, um, you know, getting up, editing and scripting a video, going to a gig, which, you know, two, three hours drive, come back at like two in the morning, get up, edit and script a video, repeat and uh, something had to give and and as much as i do love playing music live and and that sort of thing i also really love this youtube channel and um so that's what i decided to to dedicate my time to well i honestly think you have one of the best channels on youtube Thank you. and for everyone listening to this podcast what can they search to find your videos uh if you just search um david bennett piano and you're you're bound to find uh, my channel cool well i got one final question for you david sure where will the Beatles be in 100 years? And will there be another Beatles in the future? I think unless there's some sort of massive change in the next 10 or 20 years, I feel like the the time of the rock band, the rock and roll band has now ended. And um, if there is an archetypal rock band, it is the Beatles. Um, everything from their days in Hamburg to becoming the biggest band in the world to completely revolutionizing the way that music's made um, the entire story. So in the same way that, you know, if you look at um, look at jazz, jazz is sort of a, a, a closed genre now. It, it's finished and people still make jazz music and, and jazz inspired music. But the jazz's heyday as a mainstream piece of culture is done. And you can say the same for classical music, perhaps. Um, and if you think classical music, you've got your Mozart, your Beethoven, jazz, you've got your, your Miles Davis and your Louis Armstrong and rock and roll, you've got the Beatles. Um, so even as we go forward now, if there is another artist that comes along with similar influence, I think they'll be representing a different type of music, a, a more modern, you know, for lack of a better word, electronic music, perhaps. Um, I think the Beatles are the sort of undisputed um, kings now of of rock and roll as as a 20th century art form mm -hmm. well who's next i don't know really um an artist that i think um 
and you see a lot ha- having a similar influence to the Beatles amongst musicians at least is Radiohead um and there's a lot of similar aspects to Radiohead's career than the Beatles where they started as quite a typical rock band of the time just sort of playing you know grunge which was what was popular and then making quite a bold decision in Radiohead's case with Kid A to completely change their sound and that's very similar to what the Beatles did and um you see and uh, just like the Beatles you see people referencing Radiohead as um one of those bands that just keeps reinventing themselves keeps thinking of new ideas so perhaps you know in 30 years time Radiohead will be revered as this sort of um as almost like the crossroads between the 20th and 21st century of music because you know literally literally in the year 2000 as we as we clock over into the next millennia the Radiohead put their guitars down and start playing with synthesizers and at the time everyone said this is rubbish what the hell are you doing and now only 20 years later we can see well they were ahead of the curve like everything synthesizes now that's that's what it music is now well david thank you so much for coming on the podcast i loved our discussion no worries my pleasure yeah it's great Junctures from liverpool england the beatles have held this title for eight years my model of business is the beatles you know they were four very talented guys <laughs> Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. If you're not subscribed, please be sure to do that so you can get a notification on your phone every time we release a new episode, which is once a week. Thank you to David Bennett for coming on the podcast. It was great speaking with you. If you like what David has to say about the Beatles, you're going to love his YouTube channel. The links to everything will be in the podcast description, so check it out. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube as well. Remember to check back in for next week's episode of Here, There, 